In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue um, our study of the book of Jonah. Last week we covered all of chapter 1. Um, can someone give us a summary of uh, what happened last week? Who is Jonah the prophet? The prophet was tasked to go to Nineveh. Okay. And what is Nineveh? Uh, a city in, I think, modern-day Iraq. Okay, yeah, so it was it was a large city, part of the Assyrian Empire at the time. Okay. And why did God send him there? Uh, to instruct them to repent that God's, God was going to carry out his punishment on the city and destroy it. Okay. And so what, what was Jonah's response? He didn't want to go. And why didn't he want to go? That they would be what? That they wouldn't, they wouldn't be saved. They wouldn't be. So he didn't want. He didn't want them to be saved, right? So he didn't want them to be saved. Um, and we talked about a few reasons. He didn't want them to be saved. He he wanted his word to be confirmed. He didn't want to go tell them that the city is going to be destroyed. And then in the end, God has mercy on them, and nothing happens. And so he looks like he's, you know, like he's not. He, he's not. His word is actually not coming to pass as a prophet. Okay. Um, they are the enemies of Israel. What were the people going to say about him as a prophet who went to save the enemies of Israel? Okay. Actually, interestingly, um, you know, later on, um, the Assyrian Empire, they actually conquer Israel and they take them into exile. You know, so like, like he's actually saving the people that are later going to destroy Israel. You know, so it's a very, uh, you know, it's very interesting to think about. Um, okay, so what is Jonah? What does Jonah then do? He goes to Tarshish. He goes to Tarshish, and, and where is Tarshish? Spain. It's in Spain. And how far is it? 2,500 miles away from where he is. And, 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 and Nineveh was 500 miles, so he's going way, way, way. And it's in the opposite direction, okay? So he's going as far away as possible. So he gets on the ship, and he starts to go, and then what happens? There's a storm. And what is Jonah doing during the storm? He's sleeping, okay, and he's like, doesn't want to deal with reality. He's sleeping down on the very bottom of the ship. Well, at the same time, what are all the sailors doing? Yeah, they're emptying the ship. They're like praying to their gods. They're like trying to do anything in their power to save the ship. Okay, and then finally, what do they do? They go to Jonah, and they say what? Lord, you're not praying. Yeah, wake up, Jonah. Why aren't you praying to your god? Like, do something, you know? Um... And then what happens? Does Jonah pray? No, he still doesn't pray. So far, we don't hear Jonah praying at all. And then, and then finally, what? Who starts to pray to God? The sailors. The sailors start praying to God because Jonah told them, "What the God I worship is the God who created what? The sea and the land, right? So they're in the midst of the sea. So the God of the sea obviously would be helpful. So they start praying to Jonah's God." But Jonah doesn't pray. And then finally Jonah says what? Throw me away. He says, yeah, this storm is because of me, because I'm running away from God. Throw me off of the ship, and then everything will be fine with you. Okay? And so what do the sailors do? They go and throw him off right away? No. What do they do? 
They resist. What do you mean? They don't want to throw them. Like they're just like we don't want to. We don't want to kill you. We want to find a solution that doesn't require us killing you. So we, they try even more, and finally it doesn't work. And then they finally throw him off. And they even ask God, like, don't don't hold this sin against us because we're doing this. Like they're doing it reluctantly. Okay. And then finally Jonah is thrown off. Okay. So that's as far as we got last week. Okay. <clears throat> So what happens then? Um, so, oh, yeah, and of course the most important part of the whole book is what happens to Jonah when he falls into the water? <clears throat> Matthew. A big, fish eats. A big fish eats Jonah, okay? And then that's where we leave it, okay? So now, actually, at the beginning of chapter 2, okay, we read for the first time that Jonah prays, okay? And look at all the stuff that had to happen to him to get Jonah to pray, right? So first, when he got the, the calling from God to go to Nineveh, we don't read about him praying and asking God, you know, why are you sending me here? Help me to go about this mission. Like, he's not trying to pray. He escapes, and in his escaping, we don't see him praying. Okay, he goes to sleep. Even when the sailors themselves are telling him to pray, he doesn't pray. And even when he's about to die, we don't hear him praying, right? All of this... <coughs> There is no prayer. And now finally, when Jonah is actually thrown into the water and suddenly this really strange things happen that he doesn't expect, which is this big fish swallows him and somehow he's still alive. Okay. Jonah begins to pray and he understands now that all of this is because God is not going to let him go. Right. God is not going to let him go. God did not let him go to Tarshish. God did not allow him to die. God is 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 preserving him because he's not going to allow Jonah not to go through with the mission that he that God called him to do right it's like Jonah is against his will like he's even willing to die not to go and then God says no I'm not going to let you kill yourself I'm not going to let you run away you are going to go on this mission okay so Jonah begins to pray from the first time it says then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly okay and he said and then he, he speaks now this very nice prayer um, that we read here. It says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Okay, what is Sheol? Hell. Hell or Hades, right? So Sheol is, here when you're thinking about there's a parallel. Now remember, in the New Testament, Christ he uses this example, or this story, as an example of his resurrection, of his death, his burial, his resurrection, okay? So be thinking about all the symbolism here that we're reading and what is happening in the story and what he's saying here in his prayer that compares to the resurrection of Christ, okay? So he's saying, out of the belly of, of Sheol or Hades, I cried and you heard my voice. So first, Jonah is what he he believes that God still hears him. And, and this, after all that's happened, okay, shows very, very strong faith that Jonah has. Very strong. Because you might say, well, all the actions that Jonah took at this point were disobedience, and that's true. But God, but Jonah believes even now in the belly that God can show him mercy and God hears his voice when he prays to him. Okay? So one thing we learn is even in the midst of the most difficult trials is to always believe that God hears and that God can act. Out of the belly of Hades, I cried and you heard my voice. Okay? And we understand why God chose Jonah for this mission, okay? You know, God chose Jonah 
because he wanted him to go through this process. He wanted him to go through this process of rebellion, which he knew he was going to do, and come to this point of this prayer that he's praying where Jonah is now being changed, where he's being, he's like learning to accept something that he could never have accepted any other way. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. He's, he's, he's saying this like, um, I completely am out of control. You know, at least before Jonah, we could say he had some kind of control. He could choose to go here. He could choose to go there. But very quickly, God removed any kind of control that Jonah had. First, he sent the storm. And in the storm, Jonah didn't have control. Now he was thrown into the ocean and swallowed by the fish. And now again, he doesn't have any control doesn't have any way to control what's happening, doesn't have any way to control where he's going. He's completely what's surrounded. He says, and the flood surrounded me, okay? All your billows and your waves passed over me. And in this state, Jonah is completely at the mercy of God. Like, whatever God wants for him is what's going to happen. And the heart of the sea, like the heart of the earth. Yeah, so again, the... He went down, descended. Yes, so this is the parallel with the resurrection, right? That Christ, he was crucified, and then he went to Hades, okay? And then he rose up again. Okay, and this is why when Christ is speaking about um, the, the when the when the people were asking him, show us a sign, and he told them what the sign is the sign of Jonah, right? This is the sign of the Son of Man. This is the same thing that happened to Jonah. You're going to see happen to the Son of Man, and this is the symbolism here um, that we see. And we'll talk a little bit more um, about that. Okay. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Again, we see the deep faith that Jonah had here. How do where do how do we see this faith reflected in this? The second part, I'll still look like look toward your holy temple. I'm still gonna pray to you. Yeah, I'm still gonna pray to you, and I'm still gonna, I will look again towards your holy temple. Where is the temple? Mm. Meaning, I will return again. And I will see the temple of God. Like, this is not my end. He believes that this is not the end of his life. He believes that he is going to be restored again. He believes God is still with him and that he will look again at the temple of God. This this reflects the faith that, that Jonah had. And like when we are in the midst of a situation that's really bad, how easy is it for us to abandon hope and to not believe that anything will ever be restored and nothing will improve and everything will just continue to get worse. And yet here in, in the pit, in the midst of the worst possible experience, Jonah is still, uh, you know, having faith that he will look again toward the temple of God. Okay. So it's important for us to have this faith, right? That, that when we're in, in struggle and trial, even when it's a trial of my own making, I mean, here, this is Jonah's fault, Right. Like this, this is, this is, you know, Jonah can look at this and say, you know what, because I have sinned, God is now going to torture me. God is going to destroy me. God hates me. God is never going to love me again. Right. How easy is it for us whenever we commit a sin against God to see ourselves this way? Like God hates me now. Right. Uh, these bad things in my life happened to me because I sinned against God and I did this and this. Right. Whereas here, even though Jonah is at fault and brought all this calamity on himself, yet he still believes God hears his voice. He still believes that God hears his prayer. He still believes that he is going to come out of this and that he's going to worship God again. 
right? And you already see that he's starting to be revived in his mind, like he revived in his spirit. And this is, again, the purpose of these trials, like God is reviving Jonah. He is a prophet. He should be praying to God all the time. And yet, because of this thing that happened, it kind of muted him, silenced him. He wasn't able to function. God is like reactivating him. He's like turning him back on again, saying, Jonah, I want, I need you to go and do this mission, right, that, that I called you to do, okay? In Hebrews 8.12, it says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Right? Like, God does not respond to our sin the way a human would respond. You know, human beings, when we sin against them, they can hold grudges, they can lack mercy, they can lack forgiveness, right? But God doesn't lack any of these things. He, he is full of mercy. He says, I will remember the sins no more. Like, whatever sins you committed, as long as you repent of those sins, I will remember them no more. I will not hold them against you. I will not keep bringing them up, okay? Being cast out here, okay, is not out of hatred. When when God is allowing him to go through this experience, it's not because of hatred. It's not because God has abandoned him, right? In in First Corinthians chapter five, there is a there's a there's a, something that happens where there is a man living there in the city of Corinth um, that has a, a relationship with his stepmother, okay, and this is an unlawful relationship that he has. Okay, and so St. Paul, when he's speaking about this man, he says what? Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Right, and when you, when you, when you, when you, when you think about what does that mean, deliver such a one to Satan? What does that mean? Cast him out of the church. Cast him out. Mm -hmm. This is excommunication. I'm casting you out of the church. I'm casting you out until you repent. And when you repent, right, and the purpose of casting out was not hatred, right? Like when someone, you know, is excommunicated from the from the church, right? The purpose of that excommunication is not hatred. The purpose of that excommunication is exactly what it says here, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, right? That we want that person to come to their senses. We want that person to return. We want that person to realize their sin. And certainly Jonah is in this situation now. He has realized his sin. He's begun to pray. And now there is no more need for there's no need for destruction he is being saved now right this this fish that from the outside would look like it's something that's harming him it's actually saving him it's saving him in many ways it's saving him from the storm it's saving him from the ocean and it's saving it from his own rebellion right because now he's been given a second chance right he's allowed to go back again and to to kind of re reboot restart okay now you get to go all over and now you're going with a different mindset and a different zeal and understanding of what it is that you're doing it doesn't mean that all of his previous biases are erased but he's going to do what it is god asked him to do and this is an interesting point also is that god wants us to do what he asks us to do he doesn't ask us how we to feel about it right sometimes we judge ourselves on our emotions on our feelings Okay, God is not looking at the way that we feel when we do something. God is looking at it. What is it that we do? When? How is it that we express love to God? Through what? Hmm? Okay, prayer, worship, specifically obedience. obedience, right? To do the will of God is to love God, right? To do the will of God is to love God, even if we don't like doing it. Especially if we don't like doing it. Actually, this is a greater source of or a greater act of love when we do something that we don't like to do for the purpose of obeying God. 
right? Like if God asked me to do something easy that I already like doing and I do it, there's not much credit in that for me. Like, I, okay, I would have done that anyway. Like even if you didn't tell me to do it. But true love of God's is what, when I obey God and I do what I really despise, what I really don't want to do, and I do it anyway, because God has asked me to do it, this is actually the greater sign of love because I'm doing what I don't like, okay? God is not here trying to get Jonah to feel differently. He's not, he's not trying to get him necessarily to feel differently about this mission, but he's asking him, do the mission. Just do it. Don't don't. It's it's not about how you feel about it. It's it's that you do it. Don't run away from it. Go and do it. <coughs> so the same is true for us. We need to focus on what what is my practice. Okay. For instance, sometimes when we stand to pray, we don't feel good about praying. It doesn't feel good. Okay. That's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with how we feel about it. Right. We pray because God told us to pray. Because we know that in prayer, we are talking to God, which is important to us. Okay. Even if my heart is not moved, if my heart is not moved in prayer and I pray anyone anyway, this is an even more valuable prayer. Because again, I'm doing it against my will. I'm, I'm doing it, not wanting to do it, but forcing myself to do it. Right. Again, this is a sign of love. Right. Like when I sacrifice some time of mind for a person. Let's say maybe a person who is in need or a person who isn't sick. I don't enjoy doing those activities, but I do it for the sake of the person that's in need. Right. And that's the sign of love. The sign of love is that I serve another person even when it feels bad, even when it's not fun, even when I don't enjoy it. But I do it because I have to do it because this person is in need. Here also, when we offer to God something, we offer it even when we don't feel. God would have been happy with Jonah as a prophet. For him to go to Nineveh and to do what is it he was called to do, even if his, even if he still didn't like the Ninevites, right? He didn't, he didn't have God didn't go tell him go and feel good about the Ninevites, go get to know the Ninevites who like them, like he didn't say anything about that. He just said go and preach this. That's it. This is your commandment. Do go and do this. And this is what God wants Jonah to do even now. I noticed that God is, is calling someone who's not willing. Hmm? Like God actually calling someone who's not willing for his service, like. Why would he not call someone who's, who would like to? Because he wants to change the servant. Like here, he's working all of this. He's working on Jonah. Like we said last time, God could save the Ninevites without Jonah. Very easily, actually. It would be much less of an option. If you think about it from the perspective, let's say you have a manager at a company, and you have a bunch of employees, and you have a project, and you have one project that this specific employee, you go tell him, do this project, it'll be done in a day, and he'll do it great, and everything's perfect. But you decide, no, I'm not going to ask this employee to do it. I'm going to go to the employee that's the least qualified, who doesn't want to do it. I'm going to tell him, I want you to do it. Okay? And he's going to complain and whine and not do a good job. And not, why would he do that? Like, why would, why would this manager do that? So that part's not like Christ. That part. <laughs> hmm? That part where he's not parallel to Christ. Christ was willing to do whatever he well, you know, he wasn't so happy about it, but he said, no matter, you know, what your will be done, but Jonah's the opposite. Yes, that's not the same. Yeah, he's but, the opposite. But why, why would this, in this example that I'm giving, why would this manager choose the least qualified employee to tell him to go and do this task that he knows he doesn't want to do? To develop him. Mm -hmm. Right? Because God's, God's purpose is always different than ours. 
we look at a task and we say this task has to be done. What's the best way to accomplish this task? God, yes, cares about the task, but he cares even more about the people that are performing the task. He wants the people to grow. He wants Jonah, his prophet, his chosen prophet. He wants him to grow. He wants him to get over these, you know, rebellious tendencies that he has and go and to do what God has commanded. He wanted Jonah to learn about mercy. This is the thing that Jonah was lacking. He didn't know what mercy was about. He didn't have mercy for the Ninevites. He said, you know what? These people are evil and sinful and the enemies of Israel, they deserve destruction. And I'm not going to show them any mercy and they don't deserve mercy. So God created a scenario now where Jonah is actually the one that needs mercy. Right. And that's really the whole the main the main lesson you get out of this book is the whole idea of mercy. Jonah now needs mercy and God is going to give him mercy in order so that he what learns to show mercy to others. Right. That's the thing Jonah was lacking. So maybe he as a prophet was giving the, the kind of the the commands of God, giving the prophecies of God, saying everything. And it was good for him as long as he agreed with what God was saying. But now there's a situation here where he doesn't agree. These people don't deserve mercy. They deserve judgment, right? So God is teaching Jonah, no, they deserve mercy. And, and it becomes very clear at the end of the book in chapter 4. On the concept of doing something reluctantly or doing something that's against your will, but just doing, you know, compliance to God's wishes, like what about those feelings of reluctance and, you know, despisement? Like you're doing something you don't like doing it. Your heart's not in the right place. I mean, in the end, isn't that just sinful behavior or is there just no reward attributed to any of that? Or It's not sinful and there is reward, but it's certainly not necessarily fulfilling, right? You know, like both are my, like when God created us, he created us without corruption, right? We were incorrupt and we were incorrupt both in mind and in heart. Meaning what? My mind would affirm what is good. Meaning I would look at something, say, this is good and this is evil, right? I was logical in my, in my understanding, okay? And my heart was always in agreement with my mind. Meaning the things that are good, the things that I know logically are good, my heart would also be attracted to them. And the things that I know logically are evil, my heart would be repelled by them. So that my heart and my mind are always like in a synergy, in a unity working together so that I am like not a divided person. I am one person. Everything that I do, both my mind and my heart are fully invested in it and in agreement. That's the way we were created. Okay. In the fall, both our mind was corrupted and our heart was corrupted. Okay. So my mind being corrupted, meaning now that I look at everything that's happening around me, I don't even have a good sense of what's good and evil anymore. I'm confused about what is good and what is evil. I look at things that are evil, and this is in the Old Testament, God condemned the people and says, you have called evil good and you have called good evil. Right. You look at things that are clearly evil, clearly against the command of God, and you label them as being good and acceptable. And you look at things that are good and you neglect them. OK, so our mind is corrupted. Also, our heart is corrupted, meaning I feel good about evil things and I feel bad about good things. OK, so when you look when you look at a person, we are not a good like barometer of good and evil. We it's been messed up in us. OK. So when we read God's word, God tells us what is good. Okay. So I can correct my mind thinking saying, okay, even though my mind tells me what's good and evil, but maybe that's wrong here. God's word is telling me what's good and evil. We read and meditate on God's word. So we would know good and we would know evil 
And so we, now we know, okay, tries to fix the, the corruption of the mind, okay. What about the corruption of the heart? Because even now, as I know it is good, and I know it is evil, but it doesn't mean that I'm able to do it because my heart is not in it, right? In Romans chapter 7, St. Paul speaks about that he knows what is good, but he doesn't do what is good. And the thing that he knows to be evil, he finds himself, he keeps doing it. Why? He knows the law, he knows what is good, he knows what is evil, but he has weakness. He's unable to do the good, right? And he always ends up doing the evil because his heart is corrupt. He goes after, and I'm talking about St. Paul, I mean, we're all, we go after what is wrong because our heart is attracted to the opposite, okay? So, so this is... This is, the, this is the struggle. This is the spiritual struggle. This is what the spiritual struggle is all about. Getting our mind in agreement with God's mind and getting our heart to agree with our mind. That's, that's, well, that's the, the whole totality of the spiritual struggle is essentially that. Because if I affirm what is good and I, and I reject what is evil and my heart is in agreement, meaning it is pleasant to do what is good and it is, you know, it is horrible to do what is evil, then I won't sin. Right? Then I will always be in the presence of God joyful because I'm with Him. So when we find ourselves, let's say, struggling to pray, and I know that prayer is good, my mind is telling me, according to the law of God, according to the scripture, according to what I know, prayer is good. And I think we all can agree, prayer is good. The whole world doesn't agree on that. Right? People whose minds are still in a state of corruption will say, no, prayer is useless. Prayer has no purpose. Okay? So we at least have maybe that step saying prayer is good. Okay, how do I get myself to pray? Because when I stand to pray, my heart is yelling at me. My heart is saying, no, this is, this is not good. I don't like you to do this. It doesn't feel good. So now the question is, is what do I do? Yes, it's wrong that my heart is like that. But I can't change my heart. What do I do to change my heart? What do you do, what do, you do to get yourself to feel something differently than you feel? You can't control your emotions. But what you can do is control your actions. Meaning that despite the way that my heart feels, I will continue to do what is good and what is right. But now it's harder, right? Now I'm like divided. That my mind is telling me one thing and my heart is telling me something else, okay? But the scripture says what? The heart is deceitful, right? This, the heart is deceitful above all things. This is even to that extent. Because we cannot trust our hearts. My heart has an emotion towards something. We can't just run with that. We have to examine that. Is that a right emotion? Is this emotion in line with my mind? Is this emotion in line with the word of God or not? If it is, okay, I accept it. I go with it. I encourage it. I use it. But if this emotion is against the mind and against the purified, sanctified mind and sanctified thoughts, then I can't go with it. So I will force myself to do what is right according to the mind, even though my heart does not feel that. Ideally, yes, our heart would feel the same. And that is the, that happens, God willing, over a course of a lifetime as we are sanctified. That my heart becomes more sanctified. That it becomes more in line with the mind of God. And that is, that's why people might start out like in their prayer life feeling very cold. And then years and years and years later, it might change. It might feel very warm. Like the saints, like when they prayed, they had a warmth in the prayer because their emotions had been sanctified. Because their heart and their mind were in agreement. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. I think also it can go the other way, like that sometimes the mind tells you don't go, don't serve or whatever, 
and you have logical um, reasons for it, but then your heart tells you, your heart maybe uh, sometimes will um, be attracted to God. That's true. Yes. Again, it's a it's like a disunity between the mind and the heart. So if the issue is with the mind, then we have to address it as to the mind. And if the issue is to the heart, we have to address it to the heart. But we have, but we can't, you know, we can't just look at one without the other. Okay, that's good. <clears throat> the water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. This is like he's speaking about the, you know, how. Like this whole experience, like the, the, the depth of this experience. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Okay. We read here what St. Cyril of Jerusalem said about this. He says, Jonah fulfilled a type of our Savior when he prayed from the belly of the fish and said, I cried for help from the midst of the netherworld. He was in fact in the fish Yet he says he is in the netherworld. He says he's in Hades, right? Because this is, an, again, a type of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? We see also, and this is very common when we read the prayers, um, uh, like these long prayers, that it starts out like speaking about the negative, and then in the middle it suddenly changes to start thinking about the positive, looking at the positive, having hope. So this first part of the prayer, he keeps talking about how the, the I've gone down to the deep and Hades, the water surrounded me, the weeds covered my head, like all this stuff, the earth with its bars closed behind me. And now we see a transition, right? Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And when we pray, this is the way that we should pray. Like when we're asking God, we're speaking to God about our trouble that we have. We should, we should first, we tell God our troubles. Here is the troubles. And these are my emotions even. Tell God our emotions. We speak to him like we're speaking to a real person because he is. We're telling him our emotions about how we feel. Okay. Then we begin to focus on what, who he is. Who, what is the character of God? He is a God who is able to fix everything that I just said. Regardless of how horrible it is that I say in tears to God, and upset about all the stuff that's happening to me. And yet I still, and this is the strength of Jonah here, is he still identified the character of God, that God is powerful, and that God is loving, and that God is still with him, and that God can still hear him. And because he's still identified with those things, he naturally begins to speak to God now as what, you are a redeemer to me. You are a savior to me. You are a one who can fix this. And I place my hope and trust in you that you can. And this is very therapeutic for us even. Because if we only do the first part, if our prayer is always like, oh God, and I'm suffering and I'm in pain and why this and why are you allowing this and that, and then my prayer ends. Where was the part where you're now thinking about how God can save? Because why am I talking to him? Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't be talking to God just as a venting. It's not like it's wrong to vent to God, yes. But in the end, after the venting, and after I'm telling him how I feel, he's a person of power now. You know, like he's not... He's not just like any person, you know, like maybe when we talk to our friends and we tell them like that we feel rotten about something, we say, oh, I feel this and this and this. See, can you believe this happened to me? And that's it. Because our friends have no power. Our friends can't fix this. We're only talking to them because we want to talk and we want to like let out the emotions that we feel. But when we talk to God, not only do we let out the emotions that we feel, but now we're talking to a king. Like you're talking to the master. You're talking to the creator. You're talking to like the Pantocrator. 
So you don't just talk to him and say, this is how I feel, one, two, three, and that's it. No, you say, and now give me something. Now help me with this. Fix this because you are the fixer, right? You are the one that can, you can stop this. You are the one. And even if the, the problem itself is not something that is going to get fixed right away, but the thing that God can give us is hope. And the things that he can give us is inner strength to endure whatever this trial is. And God always wants to give us that. Even if he's not going to step in and actually end the trial and end the problem or whatever, he, he will give us peace. He will give us inner strength to endure and to be able to deal with it. Okay. So when we pray, we don't just stop in the first half, right? That's incomplete. Even when you see Meqbeya, the way the Agbeya is written, it always speaks about both aspects. It speaks about the trial and the pain and the suffering and the sin and all this. And then it speaks about the hope in God. And it speaks about that we have faith in him. And it speaks about him as powerful, right? So here you see Jonah, even in the midst of the trial, and this is very difficult. Imagine if you're like in the belly of a fish, that you're going to now start speaking to God in this way. You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He's speaking as though it's already happened. It hasn't happened yet. He's speaking as though it's already happened. Now, again, this is a this is a prophecy of Christ as well. Right. You have brought up my life from the pit. This is like the son speaking to the father. But this is also a prayer that Jonah said about himself. OK. <clears throat> when my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord. When my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. <clears throat> we ask ourselves. Like, do we remember the Lord when our soul faints? Like when we're in this similar experience, do we remember the Lord? Or is he the last thing that we remember? Or when we remember him, do we remember him in anger? Do we remember him in abandonment? Do we remember him as though he is the source of the problem and not the solution of the problem? Right? If we feel afraid or we feel angry or we feel hopeless or we just committed a sin, where do I take my stress where do i take like where do i try to find a solution in the old testament okay the israelites whenever they were in danger of being attacked by a rival nation what is it that they would do that angered god they'll pray for idols maybe they could pray to idols as one what else would they do Yes, they would go to the Egyptians, they would go to these other people, like they would go to all these military powers and they say, come and save us. Okay, first of all, why is it that the Assyrians are coming to attack you? Why is it that the Babylonians are coming to attack you? Because you sinned against God and God allowed this. So what is the solution? Is the solution, oh, Egyptians, come and help us to defeat these people? No. You will find no help in the Egyptians. You will find no help in the other nations. And this is, again, what we do. When, when we have a problem and God, like here, this, of course, is a self-inflicted problem that Jonah has. But even if it's not, where am I seeking my comfort and my support from? It should be from God himself because he's the only one that has a solution. And he's the only one that knows why this is happening. But instead, we might go to all kinds of things. We can, might go to addictions, you know, drugs, alcohol. Uh, whatever it is that we try to deal with our stress, not by going to God himself. <clears throat> There's a point of one that I wanted to make is that, that uh, yeah, like, yes, they should primarily go to God. And then God can say, look, uh, you can have uh, allies uh, of the Egyptians, the Romans or whatever, like we saw in Maccabees. Yes. Where, where they go to the Romans and the Greeks and... Yes, exactly. So 
the obviously the solution comes from let's say somebody has a medical problem okay <laughs> somebody has a medical problem you want to see the doctor okay but you're going to the doctor with a spirit of what a spirit that the doctor is my only hope no god is my hope and i'm going to the doctor and i want god to bless this right and there are some problems that there is no human solution there is no human that can fix it or solve it and god is the only one right so i'm not trying to say that we should never try to find any solution in the world obviously we should but the, what do we believe about god's role in this solution finding like i know people for instance that they say you know what god is the one who is the great physician so when i get sick i'm not even going to go to a doctor because god is going to fix it no that's not the right attitude Christ, everything's possible. Yes, but God, but God created doctors. Mm -hmm. You know, like like we use the things that God created. God created them for our benefit. You know, God created everything for our benefit, right? So 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 He wants us to benefit from the things He created, right? We can't say, you know what, God is giving me the solution right here. It's like no no no, it has to come directly from Him, like a miracle, and then I'll accept it. But if it comes through a doctor, or it comes through a lawyer, or it comes through whatever, no, I will reject it. You know, but we don't do that with anything else. Like I go to the grocery store and buy food. I don't expect food to just show up at my door. Why do I go to the grocery store? Okay. We don't say, no, God has to give me manna from heaven. And that's the only way that I'm going to eat. You know, we don't do that. Same is true with anything else. <clears throat> okay. I'll say Luke, Luke, Luke was a doctor, but and he never said anything about that. Like, you know, and, and um, with um, the, for the military stuff, it's, if you ask, God, because otherwise you're not supposed to make treaties, he said. So if you have to ask him first for him to make an exception. And then um, I'll want to point out, like, the weeds is like the crown of thorns. And the, um, yeah, this is a symbolism, too. And the pit, like Joseph, is because it all represents <coughs> prison. Because Joseph, he felt that when they took him to prisoner, and he's a type of Christ, and then it says bars, like prison bars. Yeah, because Joseph also is a type of Christ. Very good. There's a lot of characters in the Old Testament that have a lot of symbology related to being like types of Christ. Um, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. <coughs> okay, so Jonah believed still in God's mercy. Okay, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Like essentially saying what? He's saying those who are pagans, those who don't look to God as their god and they don't worship him right they have no mercy but those of us who believe in god god will show mercy and 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 this again is the difference between a character like jonah and a character like judas okay because both sinned and did horrible things okay but in the end jonah had faith in the mercy of god in the love of god in god's protection that he could restore him again to his even his place as a prophet whereas judas did not believe that he did not believe he could become an apostle again he believed like there was no fixing there was no undoing there was no correcting what he had done so even though judas returned the money that he had taken to betray christ it wasn't about that like he didn't he didn't feel that his repentance was accepted he didn't feel that what he did was enough right and that he believed that there was no way that he could be forgiven for what he did. And so he did the only thing he could do, which is to kill himself. Whereas Jonah, even in the midst of this horrible situation that he's in, he still believes and has faith that God can forgive him and God has mercy on him, which is a very, very difficult thing, right? This is something very, very special about Jonah and the prayer that he prayed because his prayer comes at the time of greatest hopelessness. 
It comes at the time of greater, the greatest time that you would be kicking yourself, the greatest time that you would be hating yourself, the greatest time where you would be looking at yourself saying, I messed everything up and I hate myself and I hate my life. And I had, this is the time that like Jonah is in now. C compare this like this, you know, fish's belly time. Like when we also mess up something very big and we feel like we've ruined our lives and we feel like we've ruined our relationships and we feel like we've ruined our health and we feel like we've ruined everything and we're kind of in this pit of despair, feeling upset and sorry for ourselves and believing that it's over. My life is over. I have no reason to live. I want to kill myself. There's nothing for me to live for. This is the moment that Jonah is in here. And yet, despite this moment, he overcomes it because of his faith in God, because he believes in the mercy of God. Like this, this is very powerful what's, what Jonah is doing here. This isn't just like any prayer that we read when someone is in a normal situation, even under a lot of stress. This stress and this experience that Jonah is in now is beyond comparison. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Okay, what is he saying? When he says, I will pay what I have vowed, what does he say? What is he paying? He must have then gone ahead and said he would do what God asked him. He must have then agreed. He's agreeing. He's saying, I will, I will fulfill my duty as a prophet. He took a vow as a prophet to be obedient to God and to be the voice, the voice piece, the mouthpiece of God speaking. The role of the prophet was to speak to the people and to obey God, okay? So he's saying, I will pay what I have vowed. Okay? I'm agreeing to go on this mission. I'm agreeing to do it, okay? We read St. Cyril of Alexandria, he speaks about this. He says what? I shall fulfill with great enthusiasm my vows for salvation. That is all those that brought about my being saved and were of benefit to my life. Now this was in response to everything God wanted, a discharge of the prophetic mystery, now that all reluctance had been removed. So God successfully made him wake up and with even enthusiasm to say, I am going to go on the ministry, get me out of this fish and I'm going to go to the ministry and I'm going to preach to the people. And he's looking at it now in a completely different light than he did before because he sees how God is working and he sees how much in need of God he is. When we stand in, the, in front of God and we disobey him, when we stand in front of God and we curse him, when we stand in front of God and we, we mistreat him or we blaspheme him, it's because we have no sense of scale of who we are compared to God. We have no sense. It's beyond our comprehension to understand how small we are relative to God. And when we argue against God, when we speak against God, it's so ridiculous that it's beyond our understanding of how ridiculous it is. It is like an ant standing in front of a human being cursing him and thinking that he has he's gonna like has some power over the person ha that he has a will of his own and that he's gonna go do his own thing right in the book of isaiah it speaks about what like israel is like a like an axe that is rebelling against the axe wielder and telling the axe wielder right like cursing the axe wielder 
right? The person who's holding the axe is like the axe is accusing the person holding the axe as though like the axe doesn't realize that the only way it's even able to function or do any work is because the person wielding the axe is able to is able to cut with the axe. But the axe thinks that it's doing it all of it on its own because the axe is so great, because it can cut, because it can do this. It doesn't see that actually it's the person holding the axe that is the one with the real power, right? So also we, and here in this case, Jonah, now sees very clearly who is the one in control. It's not him. He has no authority. He has no right. He has nothing, right, to stand in front of God and say, you know what, I'm going to escape. How are you going to escape from God anyway? Again, like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. How are you going to hide from God? It's impossible. When we try to do those things, it's because we forget and we lose sight of who we really are and who God really is. So this, again, this belly of the fish experience made Jonah remember, who am I? Who, who is it that I, who, who am I? I thought myself to be the great prophet Jonah, okay? that I can decide for myself where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. And now I remember that I'm not that. Okay. I'm not, I'm not who the, I'm not who I thought I was. I am a servant of God and wherever God tells me to go, that's the only place I can go. There is no other option for me. So the Lord spoke to the fish <coughs> and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. <coughs> okay. That's the end of chapter two. Any questions about that so far? Yeah. yeah I wanted to go back to verse nine. There's uh I wanted to mention the fact that uh, this is this typifies Christ in the fact that he is sacrificing himself, and the voice of thanksgiving is kind of the Eucharist, and um, there is a message of salvation in there as well. Yes, yes, because he says, "I will sacrifice to you," right? And he is the he is the priest, so he's the one offering the sacrifice, and he is also the sacrifice itself. <clears throat> okay. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Like Jonah needed to be reminded. Okay, this is, this is almost the exact same wording of what uh, God told Jonah to do the first time. Okay. He's like, go, I'm telling you, you're out of the fish. Why? You're out of the fish because you agreed to go. It's time to go. Okay. Don't waste any time. Go on the mission. Okay. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What it, what is it that God had commanded Jonah to do? He 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 told him to to preach to them this message of condemnation, right? He told them to tell him that the the the, the city is going to be destroyed. Okay, and this is exactly what Jonah is going to do. It's a three day walk through the city. It's a very large city. If you try to walk through the city from beginning to end, it would take you three days to to walk to the end of the city. So here he is on the first day. He's saying this message to a bunch of strangers. Okay, He's saying 40 days from now, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay, so again, Jonah is preaching to the Ninevites, and this again shows that he is a type of Christ. Why? I'm going to read for you this, uh, this excerpt here that St. Augustine says, and then we'll talk about it. He says, Christ explained it when he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and a sign shall not be given to it. This is what it says in the Gospels. When, when the people were asking Christ for a sign, 
Okay, St. Augustine, he's speaking now about this event that happened when they asked Christ for a sign. He's saying, this adulterous generation, they asked for a sign. Christ responded and says, no sign will be given, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was in the whale's belly three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So then, as Jonah went from the ship into the belly of the whale, so Christ went from the tree into the tomb. Okay, so the, the ship represents like the like the cross okay the jonah was like uh, representing christ was like on the cross and then he goes into what the belly of the whale which represents the tomb okay so christ so christ went from the tree into the tomb or into the abyss of death and as jonah was sacrificed for those who endangered uh, for those endangered by the storm so christ was offered for those who are drowning in the storm of this world Right, so they, Jonah was sacrificed because he was thrown into the sea, right, <clears throat> to save the people from the storm. Because after he was thrown into the sea, the storm stopped. Christ also, he was a sacrifice for those who are drowning in the storm of this world. Okay, this is this is the the analogy there. And as Jonah was first commanded to preach to the Ninevites, but his prophecy did not come to them until after the whale had vomited him out. So God told Jonah. Pro prophesy to the Ninevites. It didn't happen. Okay. But after he went into the whale and he was spit out again, then he went and he preached to the Ninevites and they believed him. Okay. How does that compare to Christ? Okay. It says what? Um, so the prophecy made to the Gentiles did not come to them until after the resurrection of Christ. Right. The, the salvation of the Gentiles was accomplished after the crucifixion. Okay. Just like the preaching to the Gentiles here in the, in the case of Jonah happened after he was spit out by the whale, which represents the resurrection of Christ, right? Coming out of the whale represents resurrection, okay, of Christ. Christ, when he resurrected, now the message of salvation was offered to the Gentiles for their salvation, okay? So again, there's that parallel. The Gentiles in the Old Testament, the Ninevites were saved after Jonah's resurrection, quote-unquote, from the fish. So also in the case of Christ after his resurrection, this message of salvation was preached to the Gentiles. Well, it's one point, because I was reading uh, uh, this, and I was wondering why do we fast three days? And actually the Septuagint version said, yet three days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yeah, there's two versions. The, the Septuagint says that instead of him saying yet 40 days, it says yet three days. Mm -hmm. Okay, And there's different versions that say different things and different interpretations for why it might be said this way or why it might be said this way. Like even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, like I looked it up this, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they even have like the part there where it clearly says 40, um, or sorry, three days um, in the in the Septuagint version. Um, but yes, um, that's true. Because Christ, whenever he um, quotes the Old Testament, he's always quoting the Septuagint. Are you familiar with the Septuagint is? Uh, it was written by the, uh, in Greek. And by the 70 people, so they called it. Yes. So, right, like the, the original Hebrew Old Testament was written in Hebrew by all the prophets. And then when Greek started to become like the, 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 the more global language in the world at the time, so they had the, the uh, Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek by 70 rabbis. And Septuagint is like 70, it means 70. That's so, so that Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament 
is actually, as of today, the most accurate that we have because the original Hebrew is lost. Okay, we don't have the we don't have the full, easy easy to interpret original Hebrew text. So so the the Greek is the one that in the church technically is what we use, but what we use in the New King James Bible and all that that is not the Septuagint. That's something else. Okay, so so. So if you want to read the Old Testament, the Septuagint version, you have to get the Orthodox Study Bible. And the Old Testament there is the Septuagint. And if you look at the quotations that Christ makes in the New Testament referring to the Old Testament, it's more accurately referring to the Septuagint version of those verses rather than the version of the Old Testament that we have in the New King James. Okay?
you know, this city will be destroyed. And the next day, you find that everyone is repenting, wearing sackcloth, fasting, even the children and the babies and the animals. You know, like that's not a typical response you would expect. Um, but again, there's a reason why God sent Jonah here, because he knew the potential that these people had for repentance and that all that was needed was this very small spark in order to get it going. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The king himself did this. Okay. Now, notice that Jonah never said anything about repentance. He didn't say anything about God is telling you to repent or else in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. He didn't say that. You know, all he said was Nineveh is going to be destroyed in 40 days. So the fact that these Ninevites on their own decided that they are going to do this and that they're going to supplicate God's mercy and they're going to put on sackcloth and sit in ashes and fast without any food or water and all of that shows not just that they believed Jonah, not just they believed that Jonah was telling the truth, but they believed in God's mercy. We go again back to this whole idea of mercy, right? They believed. Now, Jonah believed in God's mercy in, in the belly of the fish. The Ninevites believed in God's mercy, even though it was never stated to them. And you can say that even the Ninevites' faith is even more. Because Jonah at least had an experience with God in the past. Jonah knew the God that he worshipped. So he could look at the God that he worshipped and say, oh, he's a God of mercy. And even though it was very difficult for him to accept that mercy in, in the time when he was in the belly of the fish. But okay, God is merciful. But these Ninevites, they have no experience with God. They have no experience to know his character, who he is, that he is capable of mercy at all. Okay. <clears throat> and yet they had faith and believed that it was possible. And so they all fasted and they all put on sackcloth. Okay. And even the king, you know, like, like the king didn't say, you know what, it's because of those people, because of these people, like everyone, everyone, all the way up to the king, they all repented. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Okay. And this should be like when we are repenting and we are fasting, this should really be the true fast. You know, we have become so accustomed that fasting is just about what do I eat today and what time should I eat? And, oh, I shouldn't eat this or should eat that. Like, that's not what fasting is supposed to be. Like these people's fasting, the fasting for salvation, the fasting for repentance, the true fasting, right? Where nobody came to them and told them, oh, this is the way you have to fast. And they're like, oh, we don't want to do that. Can we eat this? Why can't we eat that? Like, what about like the complaining that we do like when it's when it's fasting because we don't understand the 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 urgency and the relevance and the significance of why we're fasting but obviously these people did you know if 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 we were fasting to save our lives and then in a few days we would be destroyed maybe our fasting would improve okay this is the fasting that god wants to see a fasting of people that identify their sinfulness. If we truly knew our sinfulness and we truly knew like, like how much we need salvation from God and God's mercy, 
And we'll go to him with the spirit of fasting, not with a spirit of despair, not with a spirit of hopelessness, with hope and with peace and with joy, but also with repentance. And we come to God with this and our fasting reflects that repentance is not just a change of food. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? This is, again, the faith. It's like maybe God will hear. Maybe God will not destroy us if he sees that our, our, our true repentance. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Okay, he did not do it. This was the goal all along, right? This message that Jonah came to bring them, the message of destruction, produced in them repentance. And this was the purpose of, what, <coughs> of why Jonah was sent. Now, for the reasons we said earlier, Jonah knew that these people were going to repent. And Jonah knew that, the, that God would not destroy them, which is why he didn't even want to go. Right. So, so here Jonah is seeing like this, uh, the result of this preaching that he did and how they're all coming to repentance. And now we're going to see what Jonah is going to wait and see what happens in the next chapter. And, and there we get even more insight into Jonah's frustration and his hatred, honestly, toward the Ninevites. Even though Jonah agreed to go on this mission, even though Jonah got a taste of God's mercy, but he still doesn't fully understand God's mercy. And, and, and God gives him an important lesson in this again in chapter 4. So when we get to that chapter next week, God willing, we'll, we'll have a better idea of that as well.